Welcome to the Global Energy and Environmental Law Podcast. Today is November 29th, 2016. My name is Mayanna Dellinger, and I'm a professor of law with the University of South Dakota School of Law. Although we now have a new climate treaty, the Paris Agreement, there's still doubt about whether the goal of limiting the average global temperature increase to 2 degrees Celsius can be reached. We may have to resort to technical solutions such as climate engineering, scary as that may sound to some. Today, I have the great honor and pleasure of interviewing Matthias Honegger of the Institute for Advanced Sustainability Studies, IASS, in Potsdam, Germany. Matthias Honegger has been working for almost five years on international climate policy in developing countries as a consultant for various multilateral organizations and governmental bodies with the consulting firm's Perspectives Climate Change. During this time, he also closely followed the emergent debate on climate engineering, which is increasingly finding its way into international climate policy debates. At IASS, Matthias Honegger is undertaking social science research in relation to questions related to this development. In particular, he is researching questions regarding governance, risk assessments, and risk perception of negative emissions technologies, as well as direct interventions in the climate system. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. So why geoengineering? Is it simply inevitable, do you think? I don't think that climate engineering as such as a blanket term is inevitable. However, I do think that now with the Paris Agreement and where we stand in terms of our carbon emissions at this point, some aspects of that very broad term will eventually emerge in the policy realm. And in particular, I'm thinking here of the so-called negative emissions technologies. What are those? So the, the basic idea is, of course, that we have emitted so much carbon already and also non-CO2 greenhouse gases as well, that in order to actually get on this mitigation pathway that we would need to have for reaching the well below 2 degree or even 1.5 degree target, mm-hmm. um, we need to take this out back out of the atmosphere and that's the basic idea of negative emissions and of course there's a whole range of ways to do that yeah and couldn't one of those be uh, natural methods like planting more mangrove uh, plantations or you know things like that natural methods absolutely and i think that's that's probably the natural place to start um given that these are uh you know sort of biological and chemical processes that we already know that we know they are uh, oftentimes also uh, resulting in many benefits in in places that they're uh, being used. Uh, At the same time, we need to be honest and we need to see that actually we have still large-scale deforestation going on. So that's exactly the opposite of what we want to have. So do you think climate geoengineering may simply be inevitable as one of maybe more technical solutions that we simply, whether we like it or not, we just might have to to have to choose between that or a dangerously warming climate? So yes, when, when we start to look at the more technical, let's say, uh, ways to do that, to, to draw carbon out of the atmosphere, I do think there is a role to further explore and, and develop some of these approaches and we might not yet know which uh, these are actually so we might actually find uh, new ways to do that Uh, currently we're talking about things like you know chemical or physical processes to directly capture uh, co2 from the atmosphere uh, and and to store that on the ground or in the deep ocean 
Um, that's one way. And the other one that's actually discussed much more prominently uh, also within the IPCC uh, is so-called bioenergy uh, with carbon capture and storage. So that's in, a, in the short term, that's BECS. Um, and that is being discussed as, as one way forward that could actually work. In my view, it has many challenges. Uh, and the main one of that is actually the land you will need to grow all this biomass. And uh, many people are actually quite concerned uh, about you know, the outlook that this is being pushed internationally on a very large scale. And that sounds uh, a little bit uh, backwards to me. I don't know much about your area at all, but isn't that similar to the debate about growing uh, corn for, you know, instead of having gas for cars, you could grow corn and make biofuels that uh, people realize in that area that was simply going to take up too much energy or land, as you said. So isn't that the same problem here? There's many, many similarities between the, the debate that we have seen on, on biofuels in the past and I think it's one of the primary reasons why governments at this point are still very hesitant to talk about this subject. And I think it's a risk, though, that if we don't start talking about this very seriously, we might also uh, neglect the, the sort of limitations that there are, while also acknowledging that, of course, something of the kind will be needed. And actually rather rather soon mm -hmm. already. So um, some interesting points you're raising in that connection are first uh, that we need to start taking it seriously and uh, and I think you might be right in that context. I just would like to push back a little bit uh, on that issue as to you know is it what in other words would give us rise to think that we can manage this technological area better than we've been able to with the underlying climate change problem itself. There's not many reasons to think that, in generally speaking. Um, however, it is a different way of addressing the issue, and as such, I think it might also, you know, prove uh, to have slightly different dynamics in terms of the political interests that are associated with it. How so? So I could imagine, for instance, that some oil-producing countries, which have an inherent conflict of interest with the climate change issue, um, that such countries could eventually get active on removal um, and as such actually really play a much more constructive role in the climate debate. And I'm thinking here of, of also uh, approaches that haven't been very much discussed yet, such as um, you know growing algae, uh, even if just for producing uh, carbon neutral uh, fuels, but eventually also, of course, to actually get to the negative emissions part, to store that carbon that will be sequestered through these algae. All of this, though, still does sound like tinkering with nature, and we just, as humankind so far, haven't had too much luck doing that. So you do recognize the, the fears out there among the general public in this context, and even by some experts. I do, and I absolutely think that these are oftentimes very legitimate concerns, and they're as you know as societal concerns they're a real factor in this debate so they are you know potentially blocking a lot of the developments unless they are taken serious and dealt with in a serious way and what i take from that is also that we probably need to think about you know the more enclosed approaches which are not taking place in the out of doors but actually within the confined uh you know walls sort of of uh, industrial processes. 
Can you elaborate on that? What do you mean by that for people that might not know what you're talking about now? So when I, when I say this, I have in particular, again, the algae example in mind where, you know, you could on the one hand, and that's what I mean, could be risky. You could on the one hand go into the oceans and, and you know, distribute uh, whatever minerals are, are the limiting growth uh, min mineral uh, so that algae grow more rapidly. Uh, which has been tried before and it has led to pretty much a public outcry uh, and, and also in terms of the physical results it has been rather mixed um, and so as opposed to that I would think of you know growing algae in, in a sort of a laboratory environment where the actually uh, you know ambient air uh, is, is sort of going through a sort of a laboratory environment where algae are taking up the CO2 and where through um, basically taking that biomass and, and sequestering it in some form um, within uh, geological areas that could, could work as a, as a way of drawing CO2 out of the atmosphere. Who, though, would want the waste? Isn't that similar to the nuclear power uh, issue that, in theory, it sounds so good, but when it came to it, nobody really wants the waste? Yeah, so there's um, another set of concerns associated uh, with, with the storage part, and we, we know this from the carbon capture and sequestration, CCS, uh, debate. Uh, and, and some of the concerns are uh, valid. Others may be... Um, partially misinformed by, you know, the sort of scales and the chemical and physical processes that are taking place. Actually, um, researchers in uh, Iceland found that um, in some cases, the CO2 that's stored on the ground uh, turns into rock, essentially, much more rapidly than it was previously mm. thought. So actually, within two years, oh. they found that the CO2 they injected uh, in the very deep uh, rock layers, turned into into rock, and wow. uh, that's in a way quite encouraging, and mm -hmm. might also attenuate some of the fears that we have here. Right. So that militate might militate in favor of actually looking into uh, to at least doing the research, and before we sort of you know close our minds to it all the way. Exactly. Yeah. So what on that note do you then think the next steps would be uh, regarding sort of a societal acceptance of this whole issue or moving forward at the societal level before we even get to talk about the governance issues? Right. So I think that you know many things should be happening in parallel seeing that we actually at this point as the UNEP uh, report this year showed we have three years uh, left of our current emissions uh, so we don't have much time in that sense uh, and therefore I think several things should be happening in parallel uh, and should sort of re-inform the parallel ongoing conversations and that's on the one hand, in a very broad uh, public, I think stakeholders should be involved from all uh, parts of life, uh, NGOs, governmental organizations, research institutes, uh, civil society in general, uh, because overall society will need to take these decisions. And of course, factually, they will be taking policy processes, but these policy processes won't take place unless there's you know, a public demand for it. 
Um, how do you ensure that that uh, comes about? How do you, in other words, uh, make sure that public participation is undertaken effectively in times when people, it seems, are taking perhaps less and less of an interesting uh, interest in the environment and in the government in, in general and when they have these skeptical attitudes towards governments? I think it's not easy. Um, I think, though, that given that this is a sort of a new subject and a new way of looking at the climate problem, um, other people might be interested than those that you know traditionally are interested in environmental issues. Um, and having said that, I do think there is a need for governments to step up and actually um, you know engage with the public more proactively. I also think that science should be more proactive in communicating towards the public and to decision makers. Uh, so it's it's a bit of job for everyone, uh, really. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that might be the challenge. How could they do that? How could you envision uh, improvements among those three different sets of st stakeholders, as you said, the scientific researchers, the government, and uh, the general public? So it's not like we haven't done this before. Um, we have some experience, and uh, I'm in particular thinking of a process we are currently doing in Switzerland, where we try to engage uh, scientists, and in the next step, um, also the public uh, quite proactively on this subject and the same institution which is running this dialogue has also done this in, in other emerging technology cases such as CCS like I mentioned um, but also geothermal energy, um, nuclear uh, to some extent um, and, and yeah so I think there's there's lessons that we can learn from these processes and where we can see uh, what sort of engagement works and what doesn't. For instance, uh, you know, experts simply tell, telling the public uh, what they ought to think doesn't work, obviously. But this is, a, this is a sort of a learning that we've seen taking place over a long time. And uh, it's very important that institutions that have this expertise are you know, enabled to actually undertake this sort of exchange. Mm -hmm. So more and better information exchange and also better public participation really from the ground up is what you're, you're advocating for. Yeah, absolutely. What about at the international level? You mentioned before certain nations such as, for instance, Saudi Arabia and other oil-producing countries taking a keen interest in this sort of to uh, greenwash, if you will, their uh, production processes of, of uh, oil and so forth. How... How do you think other nations that might be against this development and that would advocate for, uh, or in other words, that would want to leave the oil and coal in the ground, how can you balance those interests geopolitically, internationally, between such nations? So, in my view, it's very important that you know no stakeholder, no government is able to simply just greenwash whatever their activities are, uh, but rather that their activities really contribute to solving the issue. And uh, in the case of you know an oil-producing country, this could be aided by a strong international climate regime, as elaborated under the Paris Agreement. And uh, in particular, there's an article in the Paris Agreement which calls for transparency. Um, and so there's a whole range of ways which need to be addressed: how to strengthen transparency and how to make sure. You know these activities once they are taking place are you know accounted for uh, properly, so that we know actually we are dealing with X tons of CO2, uh, and we are actually sequestering that uh, in a safe way, 
so that we know in the end actually we're you know moving closer to our targets and actually making the world a safer place. Uh, so I think that is the key uh, the key angle. And there's again a very big role for NGOs I think because the Paris Agreement is only so strong as you know its individual parts in a way. Uh, so the mitigation contributions of countries, uh, the pledges that they have given. Um, these are at this point insufficient mm -hmm. to reach the yeah. targets we have set. Mm -hmm. um, actually, with these targets, uh, with these mitigation contributions, we will reach somewhere between 2.7 and 3 degrees of warming by the end of the century. Uh, so it's vastly insufficient, actually, if we are mm -hmm. quite frank. Mm -hmm. And we are not even sure countries will actually reach their targets. Uh, in the political world, we know that promises may not always be kept. And so there is a very important role for civil society pushing decision makers, nudging them to take more ambitious steps, uh, including in negative emissions technologies, I think, but in particular also uh, with regard to the conventional mitigation that we already know and have been testing all, all the way along um, to really you know, make, make the best uh, steps toward um, what we know works and further steps toward what we think might be working eventually. So um, you see the Paris Agreement and the UNFCCC as the best and most logical home for uh, these government or governance issues, uh, is that correct? I see it as a very good starting point for a lot of the sort of government governance tasks that there are. For instance, uh, you know, the possibility, uh, besides creating transparency, the possibility of actually uh, creating financial incentives to deploy uh, some negative emissions approaches because let's be honest they are costly mm -hmm. they are in the uh, upper uh, range of mitigation activities in terms of their costs so we're talking about 100 to uh, maybe even 300 dollars per ton of co2 that's sequestered so this is really expensive in a way but and, and actually shows us that we need to take more action on the more uh, low-hanging fruits uh, in terms of mitigation first, but also need to keep in mind that we will need some sort of these negative emissions. So yeah, I, th I think the Paris Agreement offers a range of approaches to deal with that, to uh, mobilize negative emissions, and also to create the framework where countries are accountable for their actions. Interesting, good. So you mentioned some principles already in that context that the parties should then take into account, such as, uh, I suppose, uh, the right to information and the uh, public participation from the ground up and so forth. You mentioned financial costs and accountability. Are there other overarching legal or govern other governance issues that you think are relevant here? Well, it's interesting on a maybe conceptual level, the UNFCCC, the International Climate Framework Convention on Climate Change, it calls for a precautionary approach to climate change. Um, and it actually says scientific uncertainty should not be taken, uh, in a paraphrase, as an excuse for inaction. Um, and in a sense, once we talk about you know, the more drastic measures, like solar radiation management, the direct interventions in the climate system. If we take this 
you know, as a, as a blanket statement, uh, this gives us, you know, a, a way to look at this, which is very different from the way that it's being looked at at the moment. And I'm not saying, uh, you know, at all that this means that we should do solar radiation management uh, at this point, because we really don't know its effects. We don't know what it would mean for the world. But so that's interesting because you're mentioning the precautionary principle, but that was developed, though, in the spirit of uh, of being precautionary and maybe not doing anything scientifically that we just don't know the, the effects of. But in a way, you're, you're turning it on its head and saying we should, under these circumstances, look at it the other way around and saying there's good reasons to take some risks right now because of the ultimate goal. Yeah, because ultimately we're talking about a scale of risk which is unprecedented. Mm -hmm. I think we can say that as a fact. Uh, the World Bank in 2012 has put out a report uh, on why we must avoid a four degree uh, warmer world. And I think when you read that report, its case is quite compelling uh, that this needs to be avoided. And so I think what I'm, what I'm getting at with the precautionary principle is that we need to start balancing the different kinds of risks that we're talking about and actually looking at the equivalent types of risks uh, you know, when we look at a future situation uh, given either um, insufficiently mitigated uh, emissions uh, and the associated levels of warming on the one hand and um, a world in which we might be considering to do uh, these types of direct interventions in the climate system and whether or not this option would actually reduce uh, you know, overall risks and overall impacts on the most vulnerable, uh, on ecosystems um, and on, on global stability in a way. Uh, mm -hmm. So we need to look at the very big picture as well. Mm -hmm. And so you are right about, of course, all the things you're saying. I can't help thinking that uh, to get back to some of the fears we talked about and whether they're rational or whether they might simply be irrational, if you could compare this to sort of historically what's happened uh, in uh, around the world that uh, humankind has often been afraid of technological advances, but then later on embraced them, you know, and sort of been skeptical in the beginning, you know, famously it was said about the bicycle years, years ago, that that didn't have any applications because nobody would want to go that fast. And with computers, they thought there was only a need for five worldwide big computers. Is it just how we as human beings sort of were critical and skeptical towards the positive uh, aspects of technological development, do you think? Is that just a human trait? Yeah, I mean, if we look at this uh, detached from the subject of uh, direct interventions in the climate system, I think the cases that you laid out are quite uh, obvious in a way that we now look back on these developments and we see you know, the obvious benefits of these technologies. Um, I think, and you know, psychological research shows this, that people tend to see the benefits um, of a technology uh, related to their risks. And actually, the greater you perceive the benefit of a particular technology, let's take cars, for instance, the less you see the risks. And I think we're in a society that very much likes to have the option of driving a car, uh, despite us knowing on a sort of scientific level 
that driving a car is very dangerous. Um, but we tend to actually disregard this risk to some extent. And uh, similar yeah, phenomena can be observed elsewhere. And I think once we get now back to um, direct interventions in the climate system, once we get to a stage where you know, climate change is really affecting um, us all on a very deep level, and I think we're getting there, um, you know, the case for direct interventions looks much different. And actually there is a fear that eventually uh, a populist leader uh, might just, you know, say, well, we just do it now because our societies are so affected, um, we, we need to deal with this problem immediately, uh, despite maybe uh, not knowing enough about its consequences. And that is a situation we have to avoid. In yeah. my view. Yeah, that would be even worse, sort of a dictatorial one-sided solution or a unilateral action. I mm -hmm. agree. Probably most uh, listeners would agree with that as well. So then if more testing needs to be done, where do you think that should be done uh, geographically and institutionally? So first of all, I think there's a lot of testing uh, sort of that could be done uh, without going outdoors. Um, there's a lot of you know, modeling experiments that can be done from which we will actually still learn a lot of valuable information um, about the physical consequences, but even um, you know, the sort of political implications. Uh, so there's a lot we can do without moving around a, si a single molecule in the atmosphere. Having said that, um, eventually, you know, looking at even mere engineering sort of steps that would need to be taken to better understand what is feasible and what is not. Uh, there are some experiments that could be done which do not affect climate in any way. Um, engineering experiments, but also uh, some natural science experiments. For instance, how do particles spread when they're being dispersed in the upper layers of our atmosphere? Uh, you know, do they coagulate and, and form larger particles which might fall out um, or do they spread evenly? Do they, you know, cause warming in different layers of the atmosphere in different types other than expected? And that can be done even with a few hundred grams of particles, which really, you couldn't even see that, obviously. So uh, in that sense, there's a lot that can be done uh, on very small scales. Once we think about, you know, what are the global effects physically and once we start to think about global in, uh, experimentation uh, in parentheses, actually this is probably going to be the same as actual deployment. So there, that's a huge step, obviously. That's something that uh, cannot be done within the current uh, sort of deliberations and the current legal systems, I think. There, there's a number of legal um, rules which will prevent this type of action at this point. Can, and you, can you think of a few? So. Mm -hmm. yeah. Can you think of a few? Well, I mean, merely um, all legal aspects which, which concern transboundary effects um, and generally speaking just the sort of international diplomatic system. Um, given that at this scale countries are affected by 
uh, actions taken by others. Um, and I don't think there is a concern that this is happening out of the blue, uh, because, like I said, there's no legal vacuum, really. There's all sorts of uh, measures that could be taken to prevent that. Nevertheless, one should probably think about, uh, you know, all the steps that need to be taken before someone, some institution, some country might be considering that. Yep, sounds like that is the direction in which we are moving, whether or not people might think it's scary or not, as we talked about in the beginning. But sadly, the development in the climate area seems to be making, maybe necessitating this. So unless you have anything else you'd like to say, I'd like to thank you very much for your comments today. Thank you for having me. This was the Global Energy and Environmental Law Podcast. My name is Mariana Dellinger and I just finished interviewing Matthias Honegger of the Institute for Advanced Sustainability Studies in Potsdam, Germany.